Hey, a couple weeks ago, I went to Orlando, Florida with my family. We went there to meet my new nephew that was born earlier this summer. And while we were in Orlando, we felt like here we are with our children. We should probably take them to Disney World, a.k.a. the happiest place on earth. Which I contend it absolutely is not, all right? Everywhere you turn in Disney World, there are families who are just basically breaking in half, yelling at one another, screaming at one another, and frustrated with one another because it's 100% humidity and 95 degree weather, and there's concrete and no ocean anywhere to be found. If you're going to go to Florida, you should be on the beach. That's the way I view it, all right? But at the end of the day, Disney World is for kids, and so it was really awesome to watch my kids have a great time, all right? Not my thing, but my kids have a great time and getting to ride roller coasters and stuff with them. I love roller coasters. That was, that was absolutely awesome as well. Now the older two, Landry and Eli, they could do any of the roller coasters, any of the rides in the park. And so that was really cool. But Silas, the three-year-old, he's not tall enough to do a lot of those things yet. And so we had to try to pepper in some of the rides that he could do and wanted to do along with the big, huge, like space mountain type roller coasters and things like that. And so one of the rides that Silas wanted to do was this ride called It's a Small World. It was horrible. It was awful. It was really, really awful. And on top of that, we got stuck in It's a Small World. For those of you who have not been on this ride, just watch this so you can feel my pain, all right? Isn't that terrifying? It's, it's, it's horrible. And for those of you who know me pretty well, I have this kind of weird phobia of puppets and clowns. And so when you put me in a place, stop cheering for that, all right? It's not funny. What's your phobia? You want me to make fun of that? No. It's, I mean, it was, it was really, really awful. And on top of that, the kid who was the reason why we rode the ride, Silas, fell dead asleep on the ride. I'm sitting there just rocking back and forth like, dear God, make it stop, you know? So that was one extreme on, on, uh, at Disney. Disney World. The other extreme, on a good note, was this. We discovered this thing that I, I didn't know existed. Uh, there are two ways that you can get on rides at Disney World, and uh, one way is to stand in a really, really long line and wait a really long time. The other way is to do this thing called the Fast Pass. You've seen this thing? You, you walk over to this little kiosk, hit some buttons, it spits out a ticket for you and tells you about an hour window. You can come back in like three hours, go do a bunch of fun stuff, and then come back, and then you present this ticket to somebody, and then you get to just comp walk right up past all the people who are waiting in the really long line. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. So there's, there's two ways to get on rides at Disney World. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking about Stairway to Heaven, just how it works for me, all right? And I was thinking of how the great theologians Led Zeppelin said this, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. And today I want to talk about the road you're on. And what I want to say to a lot of us in this room is simply this, there's still time to change the road you're on. 
See, I think for most of us, we spend our lives trying to buy a stairway to heaven, trying to find a fast pass to heaven. We spend our lives trying to find the formula that if we can follow it, we believe will lead us to God. And that's typically where religion comes in and gives us the formula, right? See, every religion, every world religion prescribes its own version of a stairway to heaven. And it always comes in the form of, this is what you have to do. These are the steps you have to take. These are the things you have to achieve. This is what you have to attain. This is what you have to rid yourself of, whatever it is, to gain access to whatever that religion claims to be God. But make no mistake, as diverse as world religions seem to be, they're actually not. At the end of the day, they all have the same philosophy, which is simply this. We have to take steps towards God, steps up, steps towards him, because God is distant and God is far off and we have to move toward him. And most of us would sum it up this way. Over the course of our lives, we're trying to do more good stuff than bad stuff so that even at the end of the day, if our life was a series of two steps forward and one step back, we're hoping at the end that we've gained enough to gain access to God. And then in stark contrast to every world religion stands Jesus who's much different. We've been looking at Jesus for the past several weeks and we're going to keep looking at him for the next several months. And we've been learning that Jesus is much different. We've been learning as Jim kicked off this BC series that Jesus is fully God. Remember this verse from Hebrews chapter one, verse three, the son, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. It's a beautiful verse. It's the only time in the entire Bible that word radiance is used. In other words, you want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the expression of who God is. He's the exact representation. And we learned last week that Jesus came to do a work. And when he did, he came down to us so that he could reconnect us back to God and ultimately gain glory for God. You see, every other world religion is about man trying to get towards God. Christianity says, no, God came down towards man. He came and he served and he humbled himself. Let let me explain a little bit of the context that Jesus came into when he came to this planet. He came as a Jewish man to the Jewish people and the Jewish people had lots of rituals and lots of, lots of things to remind them of some of the most important truths in their lives. And they had specific days that were set aside for festivals to remind them of these truths. And perhaps one of the, the most well-known festivals, one of the biggest one was this, this day called the Day of Atonement. Uh, you may have heard it called Yom Kippur. Uh, The Day of Atonement happened once a year, and on this day, the high priest would go into a part of the temple that no one was allowed to go into called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was was separated from the rest of the temple by a 60-foot-tall curtain, 30 feet wide and several inches thick, and the high priest was only allowed to go in there one time a year on this day, the Day of Atonement. And when he went in there, he would make a sacrifice, first because of his sins, he would make a sacrifice of a bull, and then he would make another sacrifice of a goat for the sins of the people. And he would take the, the blood of the bull and the goat and he would throw it on the Ark of the Covenant. Think Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Think that, all right? So he would throw it on, on there and then he would take another goat. This goat was alive and he would place his hands on this goat and he would confess the sins of the people. Then they would take this goat and they would send it off into the wilderness. This, this goat was actually called the Azazel. Everybody say Azazel. 
It's a very fun word to say. It's kind of cool, all right? And so Azazel literally means the scapegoat. And as they would send him away, often they would line the path that he would, he would walk through and they would scream, away with him, away with him. Sometimes they would even goad this goat with sticks and they would pull out his fur and his wool. And, and all of that was because he was the representation of their sin, the thing that was separating them from God being taken away. And all of that may sound a little bit familiar to some of you. It was all a picture. It was supposed to be a reminder. And the picture was this. Every year they were reminded that people are separated from God. So much so there was literally a dividing wall or a curtain of separation and that existed because of their sin and someone had to be the mediator, someone had to be the go-between and that person was the high priest and that person had to reconcile God to his people and he had to do that through a sacrifice and the sacrifice had to involve blood and sins had to be removed and taken away. There had to be a scapegoat and it happened year after year after year and this was a way for people to express their faith that God would forgive their sins. Leviticus 16.30 says this, Because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you, then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. But here's the thing, it had to happen year after year after year, a constant reminder of your sin and a constant reminder that the work was never finished. It was never enough. And in that way, the whole system was inadequate. And that it had to be repetitively done year after year after year. It didn't solve the problem. In fact, I think it was was never meant to solve the problem. It was meant to make the problem more clear. If you got your Bibles, go to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. You'll notice there are no verses in your program this week because we didn't have room for all of them. So just follow along on the screens, grab your Bibles or or with your phone. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews a lot today. All right, so just track with me there. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Look at this. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, with all the effort, all the energy, all the drama, all the symbolism, all of that was not enough. Something more had to be done. And the people that Jesus came to knew it. They're a lot like us, messed up, broken, sinful people separated from God and they had no ability to access God on their own. They knew clearly that someone else had to go before God on their behalf and they knew in their context that person was the high priest. Now time out, let's talk about you and me for a second. Does any of that feel familiar to you? Does any of that feel like maybe, I don't know, your story or my story? Many of us have spent our lives knowing deep down that there's something wrong, knowing deep down that we are cut off from God, or at least cut off from how things should be or could be, and it's nagging and it's haunting, and sometimes it keeps us up at night, and sometimes we react by trying to numb those feelings or just stuff those feelings down. Some of us, though, we respond to those feelings with sheer effort, trying to do better and be better and try harder. And that's spurred on by a whole bunch of religious teachers who tell us that's exactly what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to try harder, be better, and take steps. 
Maybe this is your story. Maybe you grew up being told you need to go to confession week after week after week, and you did. You, you made confession week after week after week, month after month after month, year after year after year, and you said all the prayers, and you did all the things that you were told to do, and at the end of the day, the guilt was still there. The shame was still there. You still felt weighed down by your sin. It was tiring, but it felt like it was just never enough. That's exactly the way people felt when Jesus came to this earth. People who knew very well they were cut off and separated from God. And on top of that, they had religious teachers telling them just to try harder. To follow all the rules all the time. So there were two things that I think marked the spirit of the age at the time that Jesus came. And those two things would be this. Religious pressure. Try harder, be better, do more. Followed quickly by religious exhaustion. I can't, I can't carry this anymore. I'm tired. I can't do it. This is too much. Have you ever been there? You ever been exhausted? So, so when Jesus came, that was the context he came to. And, and when he came, he worked as a carpenter for about 30 years. And then when he was around 30 years old, he kicked off his, his public ministry. And he did so in a unique way. He, he kind of connected with his weird cousins. Anybody else have a weird cousin? Everybody's got a weird cousin, all right? You have to have, or 10, all right? Jesus had a weird cousin, all right? His name was John, famously John the Baptist, all right? And John was a weird guy. He, he, he lived out in the wilderness. He ate locusts and honey. He had, uh, wore camel hair outfits. He totally would have had his own Discovery Channel show, all right? That's the way it would have worked today. Just a weird dude and he walked around Israel basically with one message and it can be summed up in one word and that message was simply this repent repent which simply means to turn your heart back to God your heart's been going this direction in any other direction but towards God turn your heart back to God so to people who were uh, weighed down under the pressure of all the religious duties they felt like they had to go through he said turn your heart back to God And to religious teachers who contributed to weighing people down with all those religious duties, he said, turn your heart back to God, repent. And as a symbol of this repentance, he baptized people. He he baptized people in water. Literally in the Bible, it's immersion. He dunked people fully underwater. That's what he did. And, And this was a sign, an outward symbol, an expression of, I'm turning my heart back to you. And it represented repentance. But even that, even though it was a very good thing, even that was not enough. Look at this interaction in Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. So Jesus comes to John to be baptized and John's like, bro, I think you got this backwards. It's supposed to go the other way around. Like baptism is for sinful, broken, messed up people who are separated from God and you are none of those things. Yet Jesus goes, no, this is, this is important for, for me to do. And I think there are many purposes behind Jesus's baptism, but perhaps the most significant one was Jesus was saying this, you're right, John, I'm not a sinner, but one day I'm going to have the sins of the world put on me so John doesn't argue and look at how it goes as soon as Jesus was baptized he went up out of the water at that moment heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him and a voice from heaven said this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased a couple things stand out to me there the first thing is this in a couple short verses we see the entire trinity at work Jim unpacked this idea a couple weeks ago where he talked about how God is one God, three persons, and we worship 
him, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in this moment, we see all three. We see God the Father speaking about the Son, the Son being baptized, and the Spirit coming down on the Son. We see another thing happening here. It says the heavens were opened. And it's interesting, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark actually reports that the heavens were torn open. He uses the word torn. So there, again, I think there's some symbolism going on here. It seems that the division between God and man is being ripped apart. And it seems that it's being ripped apart based on something Jesus is doing. It seems that access to God is being gained. And it seems to be being gained by something that Jesus is doing. and Being made available by and through Jesus. So I guess I'm starting to wrap my mind and heart around how... Jesus could have access to God, but how does Jesus gain me and you access to God? The main point of this morning is simply this, because Jesus is our high priest. It's the main teaching in the book of Hebrews that we're going to look at so much today. By my count, 17 times Jesus is called the high priest in the book of Hebrews. And what do we know about a high priest? I mean, historically, a high priest was simply an imperfect mediator between God and people. He went before God on behalf of the people year after year after year, making sacrifices on his own behalf and on behalf of the people. What we're going to see here in Hebrews chapter 7 is that Jesus is a better and more perfect high priest than there has ever been or ever will need to be. Look at this, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. So the first thing about Jesus' priesthood is it's permanent. It's going to go on forever. Look at the next verse. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, we've got to take a time out here because there's, there's a lot of beautiful stuff there. The first thing is this. It says he's able to save what? Completely. Completely. In other words, that work that Jim talked about last week that Jesus came to do was totally effective. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, that work was totally effective for our salvation. In other words, there's been this teaching that's floated around for a long time that Jesus' work on the cross was not totally effective for our salvation. It takes Jesus' work on the cross and, and anytime you hear somebody say and, you're going to hear a problem, all right? And our good works. It says if Jesus did 80% of the work and we got to pitch in 20% of the work and if we can do that, then we're in. The problem with that idea is the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach that. There are entire books of the Bible dedicated to teaching actually against that. It says he is able to save what? Completely. What Jesus did was totally effective. Now, who is that effective for? Look at the next phrase. Those who come to God through him. So there it is. Back, back to the question. How could a person like me have access to God? Not because of how good I am, but because of what Jesus has done. Because of my great high priest, Jesus, I have access to God. And look at this next part. This is awesome too. It says, he always lives to intercede for them. What does that mean? We don't use the word intercede very often. See, a big part of what Jesus came to do, one thing was a work that has been done and is totally complete. That's what he did on the cross and then rose from the grave. That's done. That's finished. That's over. He only had to do that once. That's something he has done. But there is something Jesus is continually doing for us. And it says here that he always lives to intercede for them. He intercedes for us every moment every hour of every day. What does that mean? 
That means he acts on my behalf. He represents us. Another way the Bible frames this up is the Bible calls Jesus our advocate. Let me explain that. One of the things I've been learning as a parent, I've been a parent for almost nine years now, is that one of my roles as a parent is to be an advocate for my children. I'll give you an example of that simple one. My, my son Eli uh, has speech problems and a few years ago when he was in preschool, we knew that before we put him in kindergarten, we would need to get him evaluated for those speech problems to kind of find out what we could do to help him with that. And so we sent him to some, some experts and they evaluated him and I won't bore you with that process. And, and then they came back with the recommendation of what we should do associated with um, a lot of guilt, to be really honest with you, as if if you don't do this, you're a bad parent. That's how it felt. And the recommendation was that we bus Eli 45 minutes away to a school where none of his friends would be uh, to go get this special treatment that he needed for speech therapy and stuff like that. And they, they slid the proposal across the table and I just slid it back and said, heck no. Actually, it's a lot stronger than that, but we're in church today, all right? Like, no, how about no? And you can keep your guilt. Because my idea of, of sending my five-year-old on a bus 45 minutes away and thinking that's going to be a good thing for him, how about no? We're the parents, we'll make the decision. And so we enrolled him in a school just down the street from us and, and we're all of his friends went to school with him. And the first time we sat down in a parent-teacher conference, the teacher looked at us and said, before we could really even sit down, she said, I'm so glad you were an advocate on behalf of your child because that would have been the worst thing ever for Eli. Now, why do I do that? Because I'm on his side Jesus is on our side. That's what this means. 1 John 2, 1 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus speaks in our defense. He speaks up on our behalf. In other words, when we sin, when we mess up, when we fall short, the follower of Jesus has an advocate and only the follower of Jesus has an advocate in Jesus who speaks to the Father in their defense. So here's what that means. Not if I mess up, but when I mess up, when I sin about a hundred times a day, you know what Jesus doesn't say to the Father? He doesn't go, well, yeah, I see that father, I know, but after all, I've been watching Scott and he's trying really hard. He's trying his best. He did a couple good things yesterday, father. I mean, he, his good almost outweighs the bad. No, he doesn't say any of that. Do you, do you know what Jesus says to the father when I mess up and when, when you mess up if you're a follower of Jesus? Do you know what he says? He says, I've paid for that. I've paid for that. I've already taken care of that. It is finished. You see, we are powerless. We don't have anything to stand on, yet Jesus speaks in our defense. Let me ask you this, okay? If you don't have Jesus as your advocate to speak in your defense, who do you have? Or what do you have? In my estimation, I see people hope for a couple different things. One is, a lot of people hope that there just is no God and all this is pointless and when we die we are just no more and that's it. And to be honest, when people tell me that, I don't buy it. I meet people all the time who confidently claim to believe there is no God and just my opinion is that most of the time that, that outward confidence is a mask to cover up their inward insecurity. Because I think most of us over the course of our lives have many moments where we at least sit and look to the west and wonder, and wonder, how'd those mountains get there? 
then we look in the mirror and we start to wonder why is it that we as human beings have this deep sense of our own spirit and our own soul? Why is it that no other creature on the planet seems to worry or think about such things? Where does that come from? So you may be hoping there is no God or at the end of the day, I meet a lot of people who hope to speak in their own defense. People who say, you know what, I don't need an advocate. The idea here is, is that just play it out. You're going to stand before the one true, holy, perfect, righteous creator of the universe. And in that moment, push your resume across the table and think that it's going to impress him. As if he's going to pick it up and go, wow, that really is pretty good. No, the Bible actually talks about that and says if that's what you're relying on in that moment, all of the good things that you and I have done will appear to God as filthy rags. I won't even go into how that translates today. It's the same thing we say around here all the time. There are two deals on the table. You can, you can hope that there is no God or hope that you can speak in your own defense or you can allow Jesus to be your advocate and speak on your behalf. You may be going, well, what in the world qualifies Jesus to speak on my behalf in my defense? He's our high priest. Look at this, verse 26. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy and blameless and pure and set apart from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Jesus is holy and blameless and pure and set apart and exalted. He's got the resume. He's got the credentials. He's a better defense and a better advocate than I could ever hope to be for myself. And his sacrifice was final. It was sufficient and it was enough and it does not need to be repeated. It was a finished work and it's something he did on my behalf. I'm pointing to two really interesting details surrounding Jesus's death on the cross. The first one's in John chapter 19. The the Jewish people are given an opportunity basically to vote on whether they wanted Jesus to be released to them or crucified. And in John 19, 15, it says that they screamed out, take him away, take him away, crucify him, crucify him. Then they led him away and they mocked him and they spit on him and they pulled his beard out. Does any of that sound familiar? Jesus was the Azazel. Jesus was the scapegoat, the one who takes away the sins of the world. And the ironic part is, as they shouted, away with him, away with him, they didn't notice that he is taking away sins. Second interesting detail to point to is in the book of Matthew chapter 27, it says this, at that moment when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Do you feel the significance of that? 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, several inches thick. The dividing wall of separation between God and his people has been torn down by Jesus, by someone making a sacrifice, by the high priest. And this time the high priest is the sacrifice and he's a perfect sacrifice. And because of that, Hebrews teaches this. This is amazing in Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. 
Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Two huge things there. Uh, one, one is this, that Jesus understands what it means to be tempted. In fact, Jesus was tempted on a level that none of us will even ever be able to comprehend. It says in Hebrews 2.18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted, me and you. That's what our next series is going to be all about, the temptations of Jesus and, and what that means that he can sympathize and empathize with our temptation when we go through it kicks off next week on top of that what this teaches is this we can confidently walk up to God the creator of the universe and expect to receive two things mercy and grace in our time of need can I ask you a question is there ever a time when you don't need mercy and grace can you think of a time because because I can't is there anyone in here who could say with a straight face no you know what I've done everything right lately Nothing I've done has fallen short of God's standard. I'm living perfectly. I've not hurt anyone, been mean, short-tempered, unloving, indifferent, uncaring, unforgiving at all in any way. Could anybody say that? No. No, see, we all need mercy. See, mercy means not receiving what we rightly deserve. If God treated us the way that we deserve to be treated, we would be in a lot of trouble. But on top of that, we can expect not only to receive mercy, but we can expect to receive something altogether better called grace, which means to not only not receive what you deserve, but to receive what you do not deserve, which is God's favor, which is God's love, which is access to him by and through Jesus. Jim read some verses last week that if we're honest, Jim and I probably mentioned these verses out of one out of every three sermons found in the book of Romans chapter five, verses six through eight. They're beautiful. I'll read this to you again. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In our worst moment of deepest shame, Jesus looked at the Father and not only said, well, not only said, I'll die for that, but he said, I'll become that. There's some more beautiful verses surrounding this. Look at verses one and two in chapter five as well. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have access to God by and through Jesus. Look at verse 9. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? In other words, the Bible teaches this really hard truth from cover to cover that if we're not for God and with God, we're against God. We stand as his enemies. Jesus said it this way, we are always worshiping someone or something. So if we're not worshiping the one true God, we're worshiping someone against him. Again, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. So if you don't like that, that's between you and God. But at the end of the day, the Bible does teach from cover to cover that apart from our advocate, Jesus Christ, we stand in a place where we will rightly be punished for our sin. 
But the Bible also teaches from cover to cover that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, what God did for his enemies is something none of us would ever do for our enemies and that he sent his one and only son to die for his enemies so that he could be reconnected and reconciled to us. That's a beautiful, amazing truth. Look at this, one more, one more scripture in, in Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We have access to God because of Jesus and through Jesus. And here those verses talk about some more symbolism. You see, the high priest had to wash himself repeatedly throughout all those sacrifices as symbolism of being cleansed from sin. And we have something symbolic that we do today that's very similar. It's called baptism. It's called baptism. And this is even better than the baptism that, that John did. That was just a baptism about repentance. The baptism that we do symbolizes something even more profound. The baptism we do symbolizes, and every time you see somebody be baptized in a few minutes, I want you to picture this. It symbolizes Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You see, this is where if I were you and this is your first time, my first time in church, I would elbow the person who brought me and go, I told you these places were weird. Because a bunch of people are getting ready to come down here and get baptized while we sing songs. And that's weird, but it's weird for a purpose. Again, it's symbolic. When somebody's baptized, they're saying several things. One is this, the, they're saying the person I was, the person who pretended for a long time that there was no God or pretended that I'm good enough for God, that person is dead and gone and buried. I'm a new creation. I'm a new person brought into a right relationship with God by and through my high priest, Jesus. And I'm totally free. That's what these people are going to say is that I'm totally free to approach God through Jesus. I don't need a person, a pastor, or a priest to do it for me because I have Jesus as my great high priest and he is all I need and all I will ever need. Now, if you're in here today and you're going, man, I, I believe all that. I've just never been baptized. Whether you've believed that for 50 years or five seconds, then nothing should stop you from being baptized today. This doesn't save you. This is a recognition of what God has done for you. And nobody can do this for you. So parents, you can push your kid down the aisle. It won't mean anything other than they got wet today. Nobody can compel you to do this. This is a between you and God thing. But if you're in a place in your life where you're going, I believe that the gates of heaven have been thrown wide open and that's been done because of Jesus and by Jesus and through Jesus, then this is for you today, whether you came prepared to be baptized or not. So here in a minute, I'm going to read some of the most powerful verses, I think, in the whole Bible. And people are going to line up on this wall over here and this wall over here and come down and be baptized and you're going you know what I wasn't prepared we got t-shirts and towels well it's still really cold outside as Jim always says if you catch pneumonia and die you know you're going to heaven it's fine all right (laughs) so let's all stand together I'm going to read these verses and let's party all right what then shall we say in response to this if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? 
Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all the day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 